0: Hello and welcome again to another episode of our program, Developed. It is our absolute honor and privilege to have you with us. And at the moment, we're looking at the ministry of of discipleship. We're in the middle of a series on the ministry of discipleship. And we said from the outset uh, that discipleship is really Christianity. You see, uh, when Jesus called people to be Christians, He basically was inviting disciples to follow Him, to be with Him, and that He would transform them to be fishers of men, to be disciples. So the whole concept of Christianity rises and falls on idea of being disciples. So Christianity for me, I hope it is for you. It's about being like Jesus, a disciple who lives the way of Jesus. And we mentioned that uh, for discipleship, to actually be uh, you know, uh, taken seriously in our midst, we need to examine our theology. Why? Because our theology determines our values, determines our beliefs, and as a result, determines the way we behave in the world. And I mentioned to you uh, that uh, there are three half-truths that hinder our experience of the full uh, growth and the the, the life of discipleship that Jesus has purchased for us. And last time we talked about the gospel and half understanding or a partial understanding of the gospel can hinder our experience, the full experience of salvation. And then we mentioned that there is another two areas that if we have a partial understanding of them, they will hinder our discipleship, one is grace and the next one is growth. So I'm going to focus on grace this time and next time we will look at the area of growth. You see, when you think about the idea of of grace, there are so many different misconceptions about grace. For someone who is a Christian, uh, you know, we probably know the definition that grace is uh, a free favor from God, and uh, and different people have different attitudes or responses towards uh, God's favor and unconditional love. You've got some people that, that their perception of relationship with God, they say, I must earn a right standing with God through my performances. They are merit driven. Christians. And then you've got uh, people who say, no, 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 There is grace and I can't earn it. I must receive a right standing with God based on the free favor that I find in Jesus. And some people say, as a result of that, I'm not going to swing to the merit side of things. I don't have to do anything. And they say, therefore, I need not to invest any effort in my walk with Jesus. And I I bet that you've experienced diversity of responses in your interactions with Christians uh, across different denominations. Growing up in a traditional church, uh, for many of our years, Susie and I being born into a traditional uh, 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 denominations, uh, we probably were on the side of, uh, our church was on the side of merit. So we grew up realizing That Christianity is about rituals... And traditions, and going to church, and, and and you'll hear a lot of funny stories from us about going to church, but not really connecting with God at all. And uh, you know, we, we we were taught, you know, it, you know, Christianity is about faith plus works, uh, but really at the end of the day, it was all about works. It's all about uh, the sacraments and the rituals and the traditions and and remembering the stories of the saints and the like and and. And you would imagine that when performance is front and center, that Christians uh, who adopt that perspective would live a serious life for Jesus. Believe me, it wasn't the reality of what we experienced. Us, uh, including myself and friends that I know and others that I've observed, they would do everything they want uh, throughout the week. And then they would come up, rise early on Sunday, and become, you know, deacons or whatever it is, you know, uh, people in the church who are carrying the the the, the 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 you know the the baton of the tradition. In fact, we know of a family where the father was a leader of the church, a priest, a pastor, and and his son was so rebellious. He said to him, "Listen, I don't care what you do on Saturday night." as long as he come to church on Sunday morning. So the kid didn't go home. He would go to uh, you know, the nightlife, the enjoyable nightlife, and then would come you know, immediately into the, 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 uh, the, the mass, the, the liturgy on Sunday morning. I don't know if he was awake or not, but he was there. And uh, you probably have experienced Christians of that type of tradition. So when we came to experience the grace of God, uh, due to the uh, true preaching of the gospel, uh, we our life began to change. So we began to preach Jesus Christ crucified and the grace that comes freely to anybody and everybody. As we as we preached that for some years, we got uh, uh, we got under a, a, a bit of uh, an attack. And I understand they were good intentioned people. They were kind people, worried about their youth being uh, um, you know sabotaged in their faith as a result of our teaching. So they stopped us, they suspend us from the ministry. In fact, they did not allow us to pray together as friends in our homes. And and one time they put flyers on all the car parks in the church saying, you know, about our group, it's just a small group of us, that they might brainwash you uh, with, you know, evangelical uh, types of ideas about you know, this and that, and they eventually excommunicated us, so we had to leave the church. Uh, and you probably have experienced people on this side or the extreme side who understand the theology behind the grace of God being favor-minded Christian that you receive everything from God for free, but that didn't it change their way of life. They became informed Christians and instead of being transformed by the Christian faith. And they are the both the extremes. The grace of God makes me not collaborate with God at all, or performance, performance, performance. And believe me, it doesn't even lead to a transformed life because away from the grace of God, we can't live the life God has for us. In both extremes, we find one commonality: uh, that there is a separation uh, between belief and behaviors. There is separation between doctrine and and duty, and uh, and you know, people blame Paul for that, and they say you know he came in and 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 he declared the concept of grace, nothing else. And you hear people talk about it all the time: uh, Jesus plus nothing, grace plus nothing. Everything is 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 free, and 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 life with God is 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 you know totally and utterly uh, does not require your your collaboration in any way. And if you tell me that you have to. Do anything plus Jesus—it's legalistic, and I understand their concern to uh, to champion the doctrine of grace. But I dare say, maybe we've gone to one of two extremes in our in the prevailing culture of Christianity today. And I wanted today to bring Paul to your attention and show you what he honestly thinks of grace and uh, and obviously you can pick bits and pieces from everywhere to make him say one thing or another but i want to think of the letter to Titus because Titus was mentioned in the book of Galatians as an example of a person that's living by grace, not like the Jews in Galatia and the Judaizers in Galatia that were living by the law. So he was an exemplary person that Paul said, hey, he is a trophy of grace. So I want to show you what Paul really thinks and what he does to instruct that Titus who appeared in Galatians chapter 2, I want to show you how he instructs him to live a balanced life of grace. And the letter to Titus is one of what we call the pastoral letters uh, together with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's written to uh, two young disciples, two young leaders, two young disciples who have been embraced by Paul. He talks about him as his true son in the faith, a genuine son in the faith. Uh, He was a delegate of of Paul. Uh, Potentially he's come to faith in Jesus as a result of Paul or that he, Adopted Paul's way of life and gospel. That Paul sent him to an island called Crete, which on the south of the uh, in a Mediterranean, south of the Aegean Sea, and it was just a small island there. Uh, it was known uh, to be a, a pretty provocative environment. The culture of the uh, Cretans was was very well known. Uh, in fact, Paul will talk about them in just a second. And, and does not use very uh, uh, you know, complementary uh, characteristics of them. And to this place... Paul sends uh, Titus so that he can do uh, two things. Number one, that he can complete the work uh, that Paul, uh, you know, left behind or the missionary team that was with Paul or under the guidance of Paul didn't complete, which is to appoint elders in every town. Because discipleship is not just about preaching the gospel. It's said that, that, that you may Put in order and complete the task that was left unfinished in Titus chapter 1. Because the discipling uh, project, the discipling task is people discovering Jesus, developing in Jesus and discipling others for Jesus. That's a topic for another time. But he asked him to first of all finish the task by appointing elders in every town and also to put a stop to some false teachers who were Jewizers, potentially Christian Jewish teachers who were promoting a type of teaching that divorced the doctrine of Jesus from appropriate behavior or ethics in the culture. And Paul was saying, "I want you to teach the right thing. I want you to bring reform." Actually, the word that he uses to put into order is a legal term that was familiar to the Corinthians, and it, and and it meant a reform to uh, you know to treaties and the like. So Paul was saying, "This is a big deal. I want you to bring a reform in the teaching, and I want you to bring a reform in the ethics in the way people lived their life." Why? Because the false teachers, the Jewish Christian teachers were promoting a self-indulgent way of life consistent with the Cretan culture, corrupt culture, (laughs) that Christians... With a Jewish background, they were promoting a way of life. So talking about Jesus, but promoting a way of life that was creating havoc because the culture of Crete was now being mingled with the Christian faith that you couldn't tell the difference. So Paul was saying, talk is cheap. And this is what he says in chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. He says, they must be silenced. You know, you might think Paul was so kind and polite. And, you know, he was politically correct. (laughs) Look at what he says. They must be silent. You know, he he, he wanted Titus to address really seriously the teaching of the false uh, uh, teachers. He says, because they are disturbing whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. You know what those false uh, uh, Christian Jewish teachers were doing? They were going from house to house, Christian households, by the way, and they were, uh, you know, sharing their teaching. They were gaining their uh, attention, but they were also being di- dissuaded away from the way uh, that Paul um gospel uh, and, and the way of Jesus uh, should have led them. So they're actually changing the way people live. And that's what happens when you're in the wrong environment. And for what? For simple dishonest gain, for personal agendas, they were troubling Christians and Christian households. And Paul now is going to describe those false teachers. By the way, they may have been Jewish, uh, Christian leaders or, or teachers who lived in Crete, who mingled uh, the, the life and culture of Crete with the Christian faith. And he says that one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars. They deceptive, basically. That's what false teachers do. They deceive. They evil brutes. Evil brutes actually means wild animals, a wild beast. And uh, and commentators tell us that the island of Crete actually didn't have wild animals. It was known for not having wild animals. And Paul was saying to them, "You don't need wild animals in Crete because you are the wild animals." <laughs> So much for a compliment. He's saying, but that's one of your prophets said that. I'm not saying that. I'm only referencing it. And then he says, and you are lazy gluttons. That means you're living with no self-control, living for all your appetites. And Paul is using the Cretans as speakers or teachers or wisdom uh, teachers to say that's who you are, even though you're Jewish Christian. Uh, You really are the same. You are of the same caliber because you have adopted the corrupt culture of creed. This saying is true, Paul says, therefore rebuke them sharply. Thank you, Paul, for being so kind so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myth or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. And so he describes uh, the teachers, and then the, he, he now describes the role uh, of of Titus and the role of the church in Titus chapter two, which mingles right living, reform of like right living and right teaching. And he says this: He says, "You." However, differentiating Titus from false teachers, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine literally means wholesome teaching. Uh, The word uh, uh, sound means healthy, wholesome. It's the true because the other way is diseased, is, is not wholesome, is partial. It says, Teach the older men. Okay, if it's sound doctrine, Paul, I imagine you're gonna tell us to teach him about justification. Or we're gonna teach him about, you know, the Trinity. Or they didn't really taught on the Trinity. It was just part and parcel of their of their life. But you know, you know, teach on something big. It says teach the older men what? To be temperate. That's a lifestyle worthy of respect, self-control and to be sound in faith and love and endurance. He's talking about a way of life. He's saying, I want you to be different from false teachers. How, Paul? By mingling the quality of life with the quality of teaching, and consistently throughout out uh, this particular letter he's telling him that you cannot divorce belief from behavior you cannot divorce doctrine from duty you cannot divorce uh, you know the, the the theology from ethics it's not like that it says in everything now this is a command to titus who is the trophy of grace in everything set them an example you be an example <laughs> not by what you know By doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And in this beginning of the chapter, Chapter 2 of Titus, Paul speaks about this lifestyle of a new humanity. The way the existence of a Christian, indeed, in good deeds, tell them be devoted to good deeds in a life that is respectful and attractive, a life that prevents people from saying bad things about the message of Jesus, protecting the integrity of the message. But also, he says that the message of Jesus may be attractive. By the way, you live the quality of your life will reflect the quality of the doctrine that you believe. So, he speaks to older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and all of it is about how you live a life that resembles godliness, the life of Jesus on earth. And then he says, All right, you know why I told you all those things about the way that you live life godly in the first uh, 10 verses? He says, I'm gonna tell you the rationale behind it and this is like the climax of this book or the climax of this chapter and it's verse 11 to 14 if you're with me it says this for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the return the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. And what Paul is saying, let me tell you, Titus, and by extension, the whole church, the reason why you live that quality life The reason why you live that godly life is because of the grace of God that you. Titus is an example, a trophy of God's grace. This is the rationale. This is the empowerment of living a godly life. And he teaches three things in my opinion that I observe out of here about the grace of God. Number one, the grace of God seeks us. Number two, the grace of God saves us. Number three, the grace of God shapes us. So I'm going to briefly mention from this passage those three balanced views of of grace number one he says for the grace of God has appeared that's the first thing the word appeared actually is is the word epiphany you know when you get an epiphany it actually speaks of a divine appearance of helping intervention that means God breaks into the scene he's not desired he had nobody's done anything to bring him in he just pops in into history and does the impossible. He comes in, he pursues us by his grace, not because we are good at it. You see, um, you know, I read for scholars that say that in the gospels uh, is hardly any mention of the word grace. In fact, they say Matthew and Mark, there is no mention of grace. In Luke, there is just a little bit of mention of grace. And in John, only in chapter one, there is full mention of the word grace. Jesus didn't teach a great deal on grace. But, you know, they say it's Paul that brought to our attention the concept of grace. You know why? Because Paul encountered an incredible person on the way to Damascus when he was trying to manipulate and persecute and ruin the way. Then Jesus in his kind of say, you don't deserve me to be with you and to save you and change and transform you. I'm meeting you when you don't deserve it. And Paul said, whoa, there is nothing to explain that a wicked person like me could encounter a loving God Accept this word grace, which as uh, scholars say, it's the same word that that John uses. The same concept that John John uses of the word agape, unconditional love. That's what Paul means by grace. And I I just want to quickly mention Isaiah chapter sixty-five and uh, in, from the message uh, paraphrase it says, I've made myself available. God is speaking to those who haven't bothered to ask. <laughs> I am here, ready to be found by those who haven't bothered to look. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing. The thing about grace that makes it amazing is that God initiates interaction with us. He pursues us. He seeks you. He seeks me when we absolutely aren't deserving it and not even looking for Him. He penetrated history. To save us, to appear to us, to intersect in our way. And then he says, For the grace of God has appeared. Yeah, we got that offering salvation to all people. It offers salvation. And the second thing we need to learn about grace, that it saves. You see, in the next chapter, Titus 3, 3 3-7, Paul says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, which is exactly the same thing that we just read in the previous chapter, He saved us yes absolutely not because of righteous things we've done we didn't deserve it but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the holy spirit whom he poured out on us generously through jesus christ our savior so that having been justified by grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life you see We are saved. We have a relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven. We are in a right standing with God because of grace. By grace you have been saved through faith and that's not from you. The scripture tells us we have been saved because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He has paid for our past. He has paid for our present. He has paid for our future. We are saved and saved to the uttermost because of the blood of Jesus. But I want to say something. Until we understand the word saved to be a transformation, not a transaction, we will always live as we've given God our sin and we've taken His forgiveness. Look at what he says. He saved us through what? He says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) He's saying God saved you by giving you a new nature, not just giving you a ticket to heaven, he's saying by washing of the rebirth, which speaks of the idea of baptism, where you die to self and you rise up to the new life. In Jesus says, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, that means He regenerated us, He gave us a new nature. The saving is not just a saving from the past, it's a you know, past sins, it's a saving of our own nature. Said that we actually have a capacity to love on God and love on others and to live in godliness and influence our world. He's given us a new appetite. It's insane when you understand that saving us was not just a transaction, but it was a renewal of our nature. And the last one that I want to bring, it says that, you know, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own people, eager to do what is good isn't that so precise and balanced say yes he saved us but right now he is shaping us he is shaping us you know the word teachers it comes from the idea of pedia or pedagogy or pedagogos which basically was talking about a slave that looked after a child in the greco-romans era and brought him up they didn't just change the way they learn knowledge they Help them to be the type of people that reach their full potential. You see, the idea of Pidaya here is about the way we live our lives. He says, No to ungodliness. That means no to our old lives, no to the way we used to live with that with that Jesus says and in in worldly passions and and maybe it speaks about how that we drained our ungodly life our old ways uh, you know as we declared Jesus and and got baptized and and we're not going to live with worldly passions he says but how you live this is the new existence as a Christian you live a virtuous life you live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit you live a life that's empowered by the grace of God you can come to the presence of God any moment receive grace in time of need and say, Lord Jesus, I can't cope with that sin. I can't cope with that habit. I can't th- to tolerate that thought pattern i can't interact in this way anymore i want to be like you and say i'm going to enable you to live this life where you're going to be self-controlled unlike the Cretans and the corrupt culture where they gluttons and and living for their own appetites and then upright living with a type of life that is just and righteous and godly that is godlike in every possible way you see this is what Paul says again in Titus 3, immediately after saying that passage about us being justified, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things. He's telling that to Titus in Titus 3, 5 to 8. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see, the grace that shapes us is a grace that transforms us into a new humanity. The humanity that reflects Jesus. You see that word Pedea, or uh, which, which coming from the idea of instruction of, uh, of 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 kids until they become mature it was used in the greco-romans uh, time even by Plato to speak of the whole process by which human civilization was to become civilized that means a person becomes virtuous in fact they said it was resembling the divinity or re- resembling the divine their gods it's like the best version of Of the human being. And that's what Paul is saying. That grace actually have come and changed your nature. That's the past. The life of Jesus is deposited in us by grace. But grace in the presence enables us to have the life of Jesus expressed in our actions. Why? Because there's a future hope. There is a future hope. So we live the hope of becoming fully like Jesus where His life is perfected in us. We're fully integrated in the life of God participating in the divine lives in a much incredible way. And he says that because of that future and because of the nature that I've given you on the inside, I now enable you, correct you, coach you, discipline you so that you could live life on earth that resembles that new humanity. Friends, if the grace that saved you hasn't shaped you, is it really blood-purchased grace? If the grace that saved you hasn't yet shaped you, is it really a blood purchase grace that was meant to do the whole lot and influence your past, present, and future? My prayer for every single one of us is that we embrace the favor of God, the transforming power of God revealed in the majestic name of Jesus that has come and appeared an epiphany out of absolutely nowhere, just out of, you know, our oblivion. He's come and captured our heart. He's given us a new nature and He's willing to walk with us every step of the way to shape a new humanity, a humanity that resembles the character of Jesus, the very image that God created us to bear. And that's our prayer for you. God bless you.